Welcome to Ability Stories Podcast, where we discuss the successes, challenges, and stories of people with disabilities. I'm your host, Tara Briggs. To contact me, please send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. Welcome to Ability Stories. My guest today is Bill Gibson. Bill is uh, the retired director of the Center for the Blind in Salt Lake, and you also run a ranch at your home. And um, we've recorded this. This is to interview part one, take two, because uh, I accidentally killed the first recording. (laughs) But now I know how I killed the first recording, so I can read do this and not murder it this time. So anyway, welcome. It's uh, Tara, great to have this, you back. Is this such a pleasure to be with you? And it's always better the second time around, right? <laughs> there we go. So um, I'll just start with the way that I always start with guests on on the podcast um, who have you've been blind since birth. So um, tell me about how you lost your sight and how your family reacted to it. Okay, I was uh, born blind. I was born in the old uh, D hospital over on 24th and Harrison in Ogden. And that was a grand old building in those days. But after birth, I was quarantined for two weeks because my eye problem was so unique. And it created great stress for my parents. I remember my dad telling a story of how he walked down Washington Boulevard in Ogden and on the corner of 24th and Washington was an old drugstore that some will remember who are as old as I am. And it was called the Heart Drug and they were famous for their chili. And on the corner of the 24th and Washington in front of the Heart Drug was a blind gentleman with a cane and he had a tin cup and he was begging there on the corner. And I remember my dad saying that the thought he had at that time was that there's my son 20 years from now. And I've thought about that a lot since And I'm grateful that I had a very wise grandmother, my mother's mother, who sat down with them all and said, look, you have a son, Um, he's a valuable member of this family, and we're going to treat him like any other kid. And from then on, that's the way they reacted around me, and cousins and aunts and uncles, my mom and dad behaved around me, and it was their attempt then to give me every opportunity they possibly could educationally and otherwise to be successful. And I'm grateful to my parents and my grandparents for that. Why do you think your grandma had a different attitude? Um, I just, I just think my grandma was the, the doer in the family. She always found a way to get things done. She um, found solutions. I, I know that I think that's important that we treat kids today, young people, to be able to resolve things and find solutions. She was always able to do that. Her youngest son, or my uncle, had a number of disabilities when he was born, and it was her seventh child, and they lived in the Uena Basin. And so it was her goal from the time he was born to find a way for them, the family, to move to Ogden so that he had the educational opportunities that he needed. And finally, when my mother was 13, they moved from the Uena Basin or the Roosevelt Cove area into Ogden so he could have the 
necessary educational opportunities. But that was her attitude, that she would do whatever it took to to get things done and, and make things happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember on our... Um, when we part when we did this interview originally, you just uh, told the most moving story of your mom holding you and and her saying to her mom, "This baby's going to be blind," and her mom said, "Yeah, and we love him, and he's going to have a yeah." Well, life. yeah, you remember well that actually happened the morning, uh, I guess the first morning that I was in this world, and my uh, grandma got on the old Ogden City bus and found her way up to the uh, McKay D Hospital and walked in my mom's room and she took my mom's hand and said, Elder, we're so pleased that you have a baby boy. And my mom started to cry and says, yeah, mother, but he's blind. And she said, now you look here. He's going to be a valuable person and we're going to treat him like any other kid in this family. And from then on, that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's beautiful. People who get treated that way end up having the most, they end up having a normal life, I think. Um, so your parents, so you went to the school for the blind. Your parents decided to take, um, to, they moved up to Ogden. Well, they were, we, so. we, we finally ended up in Murray, Utah. And it was a great place for a kid to grow up, blind or otherwise, across from the high, big Highland dairy farm and all their cows and uh, you know you could walk any place as a kid around there and you were totally safe and everything was just great but when I was uh, about five uh, five years old and, and some months the uh, parents advisor from the school for the blind came to our home in Murray and was astonished because my mother allowed me to walk around without any shoes and socks and um, wade through the, the gutters uh, that had a little water in them, a little irrigation water, and she was just devastated over that fact. And my mother said, look, that, that's what kids do around here. She goes, they, they all do that. Well, uh, you know, Billy being blind, you shouldn't allow him to do that. He shouldn't be walking through the gutters. And I don't know what being blind had to do with it, but <laughs> anyhow, uh, she, uh, she told my parents, you know, that the only school available to me at that time was the School for the Blind in Ogden. And my mother determined that I wasn't going to stay in any dormitory, so they upped and sold the house in Murray, moved back to a home they owned up here on the east bench of Ogden, and I went to the School for the Blind and was a day student at that time and returned home at night, and they wanted that to happen so I could be with my family and so that they could see that as I grew, I was involved in the church activities and the scouting activities and those kinds of things in my own neighborhood. And that was a valuable thing. There was also some valuable experiences though at the School for the Blind. And I think I, I learned to be a good Braille user because I went there. I learned uh, a lot of other things, including cane travel that I wouldn't have learned otherwise if I would have gone to a public school. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that because um, now everybody gets mainstreamed and um, obviously the, the advantage of that is you grow up with your family and you grow up knowing your siblings, but I think the disadvantage is that you're the only blind yeah. person, so there's not that. I think the mainstreaming is really a good thing because it does create socialization opportunities for kids that pay off later on when they need to acquire employment and succeed in employment. But I think the harmful thing about all of that is that many times the blindness skills are ignored. Braille, 
cane travel, activities of daily living or home ec, those kinds of skills or classes are totally ignored in the process. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, your, your generation are in the blind community here. Talking about my generation. <laughs> in the blind community here in Utah, all of you guys just read Braille really well and um, read it out loud really comfortably, and that doesn't seem... That doesn't seem to be the case um, consistently with kids that go to public school because yeah, I don't know. There's, well, there's I think they're they're very um, adept in the technology areas. They use most of them use computers very well. Most of them use electronic note taking devices very well. But I think they lack in a lot of the basic skills like you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think that that happens. Um, so. Any any funny memories or fun stories from your days at the school for the blind or any? Oh gosh, there was uh, there was some uh, great memories there, uh, outstanding memories. There's outstanding playground memories, is what I remember. And we had this um, device that was mounted on a very tall pole that they called an ocean wave, and it would go uh, up and down in a circle. It would go in a circle and then up and down from side to side which created the wave effect. And you stood on this circular board and then there was metal that attached it to the pole. And you weren't supposed to do this, but we'd get that thing going so hard and so high that we'd bang in the pole. And we just received great enjoyment out of the fact that we'd go way up and then come down and hammer into this pole <laughs> just as, just as hard as we could. So that, that's a a memory I have that's a, a great memory. I remember they had several, uh, some summer programs there. And during the summer programs, you know, we were, we were trying to be, emulate the other kids that we knew were out doing things. And we were teenagers and we were always uh, in the old tuberculosis sanitarium there in Ogden, which was later given to the state. And they used for the, the dormitory for the blind kids up on uh, 7th and Harrison, we would often take the screens off of those windows and sneak out at night. So I remember those activities. Uh, the cooks started to complain because they were finding food missing from the kitchen. We would sneak down and take us snacks out of the kitchen and, you know, head out the windows. And uh, we knew the, uh, the night lady's schedule, so we'd do it when she had fallen asleep behind the desk. And uh, we kind of got onto her schedule and when she fell asleep every night. We we were out those windows in in no time. That's cool because that's that's like normal, you know. I mean, yeah. that's what kids do. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know we didn't do anything malicious or anything while we were outside. We basically sat on the lawn and talked. That's what we did, and and ate our snacks, and then we eventually made it back through the window into bed and felt good about what we'd accomplished. So. Good for you. <laughs> I feel good about it too. <laughs> so that was fun. Did um. Did the kids who were away from their families did they ever talk about it that that was a hard thing or yeah yeah they did and it was a difficult thing you know there were kids there that would uh, their families would bring in the first of september after labor day and they wouldn't see their families again till that you know after memorial day in june and i um, mean in those days the school had the contract for the states of wyoming nevada alaska uh, i don't know a number of different states and uh those kids from those states would come and they'd be there at the school in the dormitory all year long, all the school year long. And 
and they, they would talk about how they missed their families and parents and siblings and, and had a real tough time. Yeah. So um, did, did you have role models as a kid who were blind who you looked up to? That... Oh, yes. Yes, I did. I, I, had, uh, I had a lot of role models. I had, um, you know, blind as well as sighted folks. I had both. Um, I always <clears throat> really looked up to uh, a teacher that we had there who was blind, and her name was Jill Clark, a BYU graduate, and she taught uh, world geography, English, and some other subjects as well. But she taught at the school and was always very adept at what she did and a fun person and used to have us over to her home and to participate in activities over there and we'd have barbecues and a number of things. But, you know, I, I really had great respect for Jill. And as I look back, as I, I've analyzed that, as you know, she was just a regular person operating in her community and her neighborhood and her church like any other person and uh, was, was just really enjoying life. She sadly later died of cancer at a very young age, but I had great respect for her. So um, what did you want to do when you grew up? <clears throat> Wanted to be a radio announcer. Wanted to be a DJ on KLO Ogden or a like station like that. And I always loved the radio and had great respect for, for DJs on the radio. I remember uh, <clears throat> KLO had a guy named Big Pete Peterson, and uh, he called it the Big Pete Show. And he was on every day from 4 until 8 o'clock at night and playing uh, rock music in those days. And he used to have me into the studio to, to sit with him all the time. And I just loved going up to the hotel, Ben Loman, to see Big Pete. And he had a beard, a uh, great beard. And you know that was a thing that attracted his listeners as well. But he was in the Ogden area for quite some time. And at one point, he did the Meldathon Wakeathon in downtown Ogden. And Fars created this big mountain of ice and you won a free car from Stocks, Lincoln, Mercury, if you could guess how long it would take the mountain of ice to melt. And then he stayed on the air for all that time. And <laughs> it was over 80 hours that, you know, it took the ice to melt. And he was on the air for night and day for that many days. And, oh, my God. And playing <laughs> records. And we'd go by, and he'd be sitting outside Stocks, Lincoln, Mercury next to the mountain of ice. And, you know, he was just really having a hard time there toward the end because he would fall off to sleep and he was trying to stay on the radio and but that, those were great memories but I wanted to be like Big Pete and uh, and be a radio broadcaster and during my junior and senior year at Weber State I was able to manage the little college radio station and they paid my tuition that way and so that was an enjoyable experience so that's really what I always wanted to do I looked up to sports broadcasters you know Paul James Bill Marcroft Bill Howard some of those names in the Utah sports world in those days that were really fine announcers. You, you got the voice for it. Yeah, I, I want to talk about um, your radio experience because I, I loved, because you created your own opportunity. But yeah. just, just before we get into that, I want tell me about, you, you went to Ogden High. Yeah. Um, tell me about that and what that was like. And Went to Ogden High as a junior and senior. Went from a school at the School for the Blind that had 80 students at the time who were blind from age 6 through uh, seniors in high school. And I remember the first day I entered Ogden High School. Now, you know, Ogden High was alive and well in those days. I mean, people hadn't moved out to the 
counties and the county schools like where they're at now. Uh, a number of people lived in the city and they were their kids were going to Ogden High. And I remember there were over 2,000 students at Ogden High when I started there. It was a huge school. Um, I loved uh, Ogden High. I, I was a debate champion ju my junior and senior year. Enjoyed debate and forensics activities a great deal. Became involved in student government and drama and had just a, a number of great experiences at Ogden High. But in the beginning, it was some overwhelming with all those kids in the hallways and everything you had to cope with there. But uh, finally made it through all that and realized that you know, I could be independent and fit in with the other students quite well. You had a, a debate coach that had a big influence on you. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about him. Weber State guy. Yeah, yeah, but um, there, there was, uh, I was, was oh. it the, it was there, the Ogden High guy that okay. wouldn't let you. His name was Mr. Ralph Russo. Yeah. A, a great man. And I remember I had won all these trophies and been very successful my junior year. And I thought I was headed but for nothing but the top in forensics my senior year. And uh, I had participated well and done well at the state debate meet at the University of Utah. Came back my senior year. And one of the first tournaments you go to is the Carbon County Tournament in Price at the College of Eastern Utah at that time. And... Uh, you know, I knew that there was no way that I wouldn't go to all the meets. And when the list came out for Carbon County, I wasn't on it. And I went to him and I said, why am I not on the list? And he said, Bill, I, I really don't like the way you cut your hair looks. He says, it's way too long. You know, I was a very flaming liberal in those days and I had long hair. <laughs> and he says, you need to cut your hair. And that's a team rule that it should be a certain length and you look nice. And he says, I really, he says, of course you should be on the list. He says, but I'm not going to take you looking like you do. And so uh, I, uh, I was angry. I tell you, I was just really upset, but I went and cut my hair and came back and became a good team member and really accomplished great things thanks to Mr. Russo after that. And he, he stood up before the class and thanked me for cutting my hair. So I guess it all worked out. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Um, but I knew that there were rules that were attached to things, you know, that's what I learned from that experience, that if you're going to be part of things, part of a team, part of the military, part of anything else, part of a community, that there are rules you have to adhere to, and you just don't go doing everything that you want to do. Well, and also being held to the same expectations as everybody else. Right. That's, that's true as well. My, my, Absolutely, yeah. My favorite, yeah. one of my best college teachers gave me a C on the pay, on a on a paper and I was so sad and I said well what do I do he said we'll do better next time all right, right. <laughs> and I went and reread the paper and went I deserve that C <laughs> now the Weber State coach John Hambastreet what he taught me is is that in anything you do in life you're only as good as your competition so he taught us that we could debate against anybody the big teams from UCLA from Southern California from Notre Dame from the Air Force Academy, that if we studied and worked hard enough, we can compete against those debaters from those schools. And you, you went on a, you went to Weber State on a debating <clears throat> scholarship. Right? Yeah, my my first two years. Yeah. And then I then I took it, then I decided that well, I needed to move on with my studies, and I was spending a lot of time on debate trips and things. So then I devoted myself strictly to the education, managing the radio station, so I could pay for my tuition. But he had um <coughs> excuse he me. He had you do um 
I think it was him who had you go and work with uh, other people with disabilities. And was that? Was that yeah. Him? Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, tell me about when that. I was a freshman, he brought me in one afternoon. He says, you really need to humble yourself. He says, you're kind of a cocky kid. And I says, really? And he says, yeah, you really do, Bill. He says, you put people off. He says, you're way too cocky. He says, I'm going to send you on an experience. And he says, to keep your scholarship, you're going to have to do it for like the next eight weeks. And he sent me to this school in the Weber County School District that served very disabled students, multiply disabled students. And I would go down there a couple afternoons a week and work with those kids for three or four hours. And uh, he was right. It was a very humbling experience. And it totally changed my approach to life. It really did. In what way? Um, I think I became much more humble, which is what he wanted. I realized that, you know, if I was going to accomplish things in life that it really uh, required a great deal of hard work and and that I really needed to be motivated and committed to those things. And I guess you, um, that's sort of what, you can always find somebody who is worse off than you are. And those kids were a lot worse off than I was. And so it, it gave me the feeling that, boy, I wasn't, didn't have it so bad and I could accomplish just about anything. So um, talk to me about I mean, you you did radio you in in college. And yeah, you were successful. Yeah. At and I did radio. I did commercial radio for a while. I worked for a talk station in Salt Lake City called Talk sixty three, uh, KSXX six thirty on the dial, and Starley Bush was the manager. Old Starley did a lot for me. I don't know if he's alive still, but he was a good man. And I had a show there on Saturday afternoon, and then did other various other news assignments for them during the week and Starley took a chance on me and he liked me because I could keep the phones ringing. It was during the Vietnam era and people had a lot of opinions and many things to say. But you you made your own opportunity because yeah. you walked in there and you just... You uh, they they were looking for people to do a... I learned that they were looking for people to do a show on Saturday afternoon. And so I walked in there and said to the lady at the front desk, I want to talk to Starley Bush. I knew he was a station manager. And so she, uh, I, I could hear her on the phone and she was talking real quiet thinking I couldn't hear her, but I was doing everything to listen to her. And she was saying, you know, you got this, this young kid out here who's blind. and Starley wants to talk to you. And Starley, to his credit, he said, I'll be right out. And mm. He came out and he shook my hand and invited me back into his office. And the rest is history. He took a chance on me. Were you scared? Oh, I was, I was shaking so hard. <laughs> the first day I was on the air tear, I could have, um, I'm sure my voice squeaked. and I'm sure it was jittery. But he, uh, he, he took a chance on me and, and it was a good thing for all of us. The windows of the studio faced State Street. So you were on State Street in Salt Lake City between 3rd and 4th South, and people used to stand out by the windows and make faces at you and knock on the window. And um, this, this other gentleman that worked at the studio, he had a big deal about the federal government invading your privacy because of your Social Security number. There were protests going on about people and their Social Security cards and numbers and how the federal government was invading our privacy. And all of those kinds of things helped me to grow. That's my point. They, they, they helped me to grow into the person that I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I mean, it, sure, did it, did it take courage to just walk in there 
Oh yeah. In the first place. Yeah. Could go into some guy that you don't know and just. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because it was, it was a the kind of station where everybody there that hung out had definite, distinct opinions about things, and they weren't afraid to be real vocal about them. And then you you ended up managing, right? The. Well, I managed the Weber State College Station for two years, my junior and senior year of college, and I had a program on that called the KWCR on the air forum and I did it in the afternoon for uh, about nine months and we would do it for an hour every afternoon and I had members of the John Birch Society and the County Commission and the governor and the mayor and and uh, all kinds of uh, I had a geneticist a genetics counselor from the U Medical Center once which was was very interesting so um, again Meeting those people and being able to interview them was truly a great experience. Yeah. So um, you graduated from college, and then what came next? Now and then Weaver State said, if you go get some other degrees, you can work here uh, full time. So I went back to the U and got some other degrees, and then I went on um, after I started work with the state of Utah to the University of Oklahoma. They paid for the federal rehab training there at the time and got a certificate in rehab administration. So educationally, it's all been good. I've, I've enjoyed that part of it throughout my life. Thank you for joining us on Ability Stories. Please review this podcast in iTunes. To comment on this episode, please go to abilitystories.podbean.com. If you have any show ideas or would like to be a guest on Ability Stories, send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. <laughs>